Revelation. And if you're with us this evening and you are without a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. You just wave to them. They'll put one in your hand. You'll be really, really lost tonight without a Bible to follow along uh, with. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift uh, from the Lord to you this evening. We remember as we came to chapter 46, and it goes all the way through chapter 51, that uh, Jeremiah uh, brings this series of warnings or series of, uh, of judgments against the nations that surrounded uh, the nation of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar was not only going to be used by uh, God to judge Israel, but also the same sins in the surrounding nations. Uh, and as we mentioned last time, I think even today, it's very common for a person who is, has nothing to do with religion at all, they're an atheist or an agnostic perhaps, or even uh, belong to a religion that has nothing to do with uh, the God of the Bible, and to begin to think that, well, God can't touch me, He's not going to touch me, He's not going to judge me, I don't even believe that He exists. Well, you still have a problem. He believes He exists. And he does exist. And it doesn't matter whether I violate his laws or sin or commit adultery uh, or rebel against him uh, in the garb of atheism or agnosticism or in some other religion. It is still to sin in his universe. It is still to sin against his commandments. And it is still an affront to him, as, as would be the case. Think about how, how many people are impressed with your life. I mean, your spouse, maybe just a tiny bit. He's, all right, he's maybe 20%. I mean, we're not that impressive. We're really not, I any of us. Uh, people come to our memorial services more out of just to uh, have the salami sandwiches in the, in the end. And when you think about what we are, you know, uh, as Shakespeare said, man, poor man, so ignorant, and that which he knows best, to say nothing of the life that we live. And then to do this against the Creator in any of our hearts, it's, a, it's an affront against heaven, it's an affront against God, and, and God will judge it. And so he speaks now as Jeremiah in these closing chapters, these are a collection of his uh, prophecies about judgment of the nations that surrounded the nation of Israel. And as we've already seen last time, we read uh, his prophecy concerning the coming judgment of Egypt, and then also Philistia, which was the land of the Philistines. And as, as was the case with both of those prophecies, each of those uh, nations were mightily chastised and uh, judged by the Babylonians. All of the nations that we'll look at uh, tonight, the same thing is going to happen. When we look at prophecy in the Bible, when you're talking about biblical prophecy, not talking about uh, Gene Dixon or horoscopes or anything like this, we're talking about the authority. Uh, someone who lives outside of the time-space continuum uh, that I know nothing about, but it sounds very good. Anyway, he's not bound by time. He sees everything in the present tense. He is the great I am. There's no mystery for him at all. And so when he speaks of what is a future event for us, it's as sure as uh, anything within our history. And biblical prophecy is simply history in, ad in advance. And as we read the moment concerning God's judgment upon the Moabites, all of that came to pass. And we'll look at it. And how many of you know a Moabite? Just a quick show of hands in your neighborhood or any ever run into a Moabite. No, they're kind of gone, aren't they? God is going to restore them, as we'll see at the end, end of the chapter. But all of this judgment came to pass. All of the prophecy came to pass. 
And while it may not have immediate application to us in, in terms of the fact that we're not Moabites here tonight, uh, we are for the most part Christians, uh, if we're living in rebellion to God, the chapter has an awful lot to say uh, to us. But to look at it and to realize that as, as, as thoroughly as each one of these prophecies came to pass related to the Moabites and then others that we're going to look at uh, this evening, so too when we read biblical prophecy that is yet to come to pass, it's for the end of the age. It's not like it's late. It's the time of uh, Jesus' return and the, uh, uh, the rapture of the church, the great tribulation, the second coming, the kingdom of age, and so forth, that when we read these things in terms of prophecy, to know that when we read the book of Revelation, we read Matthew chapters 24 and 25, we read vast sections of uh, the book of Ezekiel and other prophetic scriptures within the New Testament and Old Testament and know these are going to come to pass. They are simply for us history in advance and uh, as, as surely as they came uh, to pass at the time of Jeremiah. Chapter uh, 48 has to do with Moab. Moab was a, a group of people who occupied a very uh, fertile part of the Middle East in those days. It remains a very fertile part of the, of the Middle East to this day, only we know it as a portion of the country of uh, Jordan. And so uh, the Moabites, they were in the southern half of what is modern-day Jordan on the east side uh, of the Jordan River in the, or the Dead Sea, and so a, a fertile part of, uh, of the land, and, and uh, that's where they were located. Very, very closely connected with the children of Israel. They were descendants of Lot. You remember Lot was the nephew of Abraham, Father Abraham, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. So there was a bloodline in all of that. Uh, and historically, Moab's relationship with Israel, uh, it ebbed back and forth. Sometimes it was very, very good. They had close, warm relationships. And other times they fought uh, mightily uh, against e each other. Uh, during the Babylonian crisis, in which Babylon is looking to conquer that entire part uh, of the world, both uh, uh, Judah, also Moab, and Ammon, they allied themselves all together in an attempt uh, to confront or to stop the Babylonian uh, invasion. So at this point, they were friends of necessity, bedfellows in order to uh, try and resist uh, a, a very ill-fated attempt to resist uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Moab was where uh, Naomi and Chilion went when there was the famine there in the land of, of Israel and uh, particularly at Bethlehem, and uh, their sons, as you might remember, went in and married Moabitess women, one of them by the name uh, of Ruth, who later, as the story of Ruth unfolds, married a gentleman by the name of Boaz. All of this is the subject of the Old Testament uh, book of Ruth, and she became the great-grandfather of King David, and thus in the bloodline uh, of Jesus, one of the three women uh, listed in Matthew's gospel, along with Rahab and uh, Tamar, mentioned as being in the, uh, the bloodline or the genealogy of Jesus. You remember when David was fleeing from Saul for so many years in Israel's history that he took his family ultimately to Moab for the safekeeping uh, of his family, thinking they would be slaughtered uh, by Saul if he ever got his hands on them. And the reason that he took his family to Moab is they had blood, they had family and relatives uh, in 
Moab. Uh, in uh, 582 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar's army did invade Moab, destroyed uh, the people in the cities, uh, all of uh, the desolation that we're about to read uh, here uh, as we begin now in verse 1. Against Moab, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, woe to Nebo, and uh, here is this uh, pronouncement of woe upon her major cities and the fact that they will be destroyed, Nebo being one of them, for it is plundered. Plundered is a very strong word. We're not talking about a, you know, a silent kind of coup. This is a very uh, violent kind of action. Kirjath Aim is shamed and taken, another of her cities. The high stronghold associated with her is shamed and dismayed. No more praise uh, of Moab in uh, of Moab in Heshbon, another city. They have devised evil against her. Come and let us cut her off as a nation. The plan to destroy Moab by uh, Babylon. And you shall be cut down, O madmen. The sword shall pursue you. A voice of crying shall be heard. And Horonaim, uh, 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 plundering and great destruction. So all of her major cities would be uh, uh, unable to defend themselves against uh, the Babylonian uh, juggernaut. Moab is destroyed, and her little ones have caused a cry to be heard. For in the ascent of uh, Luhith, they uh, ascend with continual weeping. For on the descent of Horonaim, the enemies have heard a cry of destruction, and this describes all of uh, the younger children, the young ones of the nation, uh, in the light of the onslaught, fleeing the cities for anywhere that they can survive, and uh, and so the land becomes this uh, is filled with this uh, weeping mass of refugees. A very sad uh, picture, and God's going to reveal the reason why their pride and their idolatry. Flee, run, save your lives. Be like the juniper in the wilderness. And so, uh, the nation becomes uh, one in which the only survival within the nation is to simply flee and, and, and run for your life out into the wilderness. For because you have trusted in your works and your treasures, so talking about the idolatry, the idol, idols that they worship as an affront, an offense to God. You remember that when um, uh, when uh, King Solomon uh, began, as he, he began so well in his relationship with God and ruling the nation of Israel properly, but then he began to marry all of these strange wives, not that they were odd, but that they came from strange nations. They came from the nations that surrounded uh, Israel. They brought their gods with them, and then uh, Solomon set up temples for them on the Mount of Olives. I mean, it's just like, what in the world are you you're doing, Solomon? I, you're, you're bringing idolatry in, and you're putting it in with, within eyesight uh, of the temple that God is allowing you to build, and, and your father would have given his right arm to be able to build it. What are you thinking? And God, when ultimately he judged uh, uh, Israel, and they went into captivity and, and so forth, he described these gods that Solomon, these uh, idols that Solomon had set up to worship for on the Mount of Olives, and he declared them to be abominations. It's an interesting thing. When we read the Bible, it's important. You live in the same world that I live in, right? Do, 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 do. <laughs> I think we do. 
But here we, you know, we look at the world that we're in. We see all of the nuttiness, all of the crazy ideas that our people are coming up with. We see this kind of clash of uh, liberalism and conservatism. We look at the clash of uh, morality and immorality, a biblical morality and an unbiblical uh, immorality and so forth, all this stuff that's going on uh, in, in the clash. And, and because all of this is going on amongst ourselves, human being to human being, and then you look and say, well, you know, the sexual revolution is on steroids. How are we ever going to get turned back from this? The new morality, who's going to push this back? It becomes the minority, and then anybody that doesn't believe in it becomes a minority, and then ultimately a persecuted minority, and then it looks like, okay, because we've got 80% of the population that believes what we want on, on these things that God condemns, that everything is okay. As if we are having a discussion among ourselves in the universe, and as if there isn't a God who isn't watching all of this, and very much in charge of all of this, and will intervene. And, and so, uh, here is this uh, trusting in their works, in their idolatry, trusting in their treasures. Nothing can happen to us. Uh, we're too wealthy. Nobody could ever conquer us. And he said, you also shall be taken. Now, uh, when I began as a pastor some 34 years ago, or whatever is 33 years ago, 32 years ago, see what happens over that time? You lose track of how long things are. But uh, when I began back then, you know, we would talk about in some of these prophecies the warning to the United States of America not to trust in our wealth and not to trust in our military, our pride, our arrogance, our materialism, and so forth. Trusting in all of these things, it's a temptation rather than God. And uh, these are the same warnings that we need to heed from related to Moab even to this day. Uh, but uh, if we're tr in the United States of America, if we're trusting in our treasure. It is only because we haven't heard uh, recently what the size of the national debt is. Uh, we don't have much trust. This, this is a dog and pony show. This is a, a castle made out of, a house made out of cards. It's interesting. They want to do nationalized medicine now, don't they? Listen, I'm not going to raise that as a subject. I just wish they began the discussion before we were $20 trillion in debt. I might feel a little bit better about what kind of health care we might get out of it before we're, uh, you know, owned by China or who, who knows who. Uh, but the beat goes on. There's nothing new under the sun, and, uh, and here we go. But the temptation here of trusting in works, idolatry, moving away from God, saying there's no way that we can be judged, there's no way we can be humbled, we are too wealthy, and, uh, and, and uh, we have too much treasure. And God says uh, flat out, and you shall be taken. And Chemosh, who was, who was their chief deity of the Moabites, shall go forth into captivity. It's always a sad thing to watch your God loaded up on a cart and uh, uh, taken off to Babylon. That means you're in trouble. And uh, that's exactly what happened the folly of idolatry. Uh, the idol idolatry is the worship of any created thing. There are only two things in all of the universe. There's the creator and there's the creation. And there's an infinite gap between uh, the two. And uh, anything that you and I can create is less than us by virtue of the fact that we thought it up and we created it. Why would we worship anything that is less than us? It's completely illogical. And yet it goes on all of the time because there's a spirit, the demonic spirit that is upon the world that only God can break through. And so 
Chemosh shall go forth into captivity, all of his priests and uh, his princes together, unable to even keep his close cabinet members from, uh, and priests and, and princes from uh, being taken captive, much less the common person of Moab. And the plunder shall come against every city, and no every, that's, that's every city. Every city means every city. It's talking about how widespread the destruction will be, the judgment. And no one shall escape. And the valley also shall perish, and the plain shall be destroyed. There's nowhere you can run and hide in the land from the judgment as the Lord has spoken. Uh, so, everybody in, in every place is going to face this judgment. No escape. Give wings to Moab that she may flee and get away, for her cities shall be desolate without any to dwell in them. So her cities are going to be left completely desolate. I don't know if you've ever gone through a city where they've evacuated or something like that. It's kind of a weird, eerie feeling, and that's going to happen to the entire nation. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord deceitfully, and cursed is he who keeps back his sword from blood. And so the instruments of judgment that God was using related to the Moabites were the Babylonians, and here is this encouragement, prophetic encouragement, for them not to be slack in terms of uh, meeting out the uh, fullness of the judgment that they were due. They were to do their work earnestly. Moab has been at ease from his youth, and uh, which means for a long time he has settled on his dregs and has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, uh, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore, his taste remains in him, and the scent has not uh, changed. So, here is the uh, getting to the core of, of the problem uh, with Moab here related to the judgment is uh, th uh, three phrases, really, that are used here in verse 11, important to notice that word ease, and then ease, of course, in life usually leads to a settling, and then as it continues at the end of verse, uh, toward the end of verse 11, and has not been emptied uh, from vessel uh, to vessel. Now, Moab, because of uh, where it was located, it was in kind of an isolated part of the ancient world, and, uh, and pretty secure as a result of that. It was kind of off of the beaten path. Almost all traffic north and south in the ancient world went through Israel, and it bypassed uh, Moab. And so, as you, as you would look at Moab today, all the way off into the east, there was desert. No one would ever attack them uh, from the east. It was physically impossible in those days. And so she was, uh, because of her, the elevated uh, kind of place that she was located in terms of her situation, the desert protecting her uh, on one side, the Dead Sea to the other side, she'd never been conquered by uh, another nation. She'd never gone uh, into exile. And so God speaks about the fact that because of this kind of undeserved, a disturbed uh, existence that she had, uh, that she had grown very, very proud and very, very uh, indulgent as a result of it. And so now God says, <clears throat> excuse me, you are going to be uh, disturbed. And one of the pictures that we get of Moab as we go through here over and over again as it builds and builds and builds is that the chief characteristic of Moab was their arrogance and their pride against their neighbors, but also uh, against God. Now, Moab 
And the area of Moab, again, was a very, very fertile area up, up above on the plain. And so things came very, very easy for them. Crops were good. The soil was good. There were water sources and so forth. They grew every kind of crop, but they also became famous for uh, grape growing and uh, wine production. And so they became very prosperous in the ancient world. And it isn't an accident, as God uh, warns them here, uh, that he uses an image from winemaking uh, concerning that judgment that he's going to bring upon them and the reason for it. They were very, very familiar with the imagery. He uh, uh, points out the fact that they were at ease, and as a result, again, of be, having been at ease for a long period of time, they'd become settled and had, had not been emptied from vessel to vessel, uh, ceased doing that as you would do with a, what was true of a wine in order to end up with a good wine in those days was also, uh, is, is also necessary of a nation and also necessary uh, of an individual, and yet they had been spared that uh, for a long time. Uh, let me give you a short primer on winemaking. It's probably my specialty, and uh, along with cooking. Uh, we'll save that for another night. But in winemaking, uh, there are evidently two kinds of lees. Uh, there are the gross lees, that is the large lees, and then the fine lees. And the gross leaves refer to uh, things like grape skins and seeds, uh, natural debris that gets harvested with the grapes like stems and so forth that end up in the wine and kind of the early uh, process. And it'd be, all of these things begin to settle down uh, to the bottom in your fermentation uh, container. Uh, these particular leaves, if, if you leave them in there for too long of a period of time, they will <clears throat> ruin the wine. And so, early in the process, even in the ancient world, after all of this debris, this gross lees had dropped to the bottom uh, of these fermentation co containers, these pots, uh, they would then uh, take the wine and they would then pour it through a sieve or through some cloth or something into another container. And they would separate the gross lees from the rest of the wine, and the fine lees would remain in the wine because that's a beneficial part of the process of producing a fine wine. And the, and the lesson that God is speaking to them here is that as a nation, Moab hadn't been emptied from vessel to vessel. That is, they'd had an easy life, they'd had a soft life, very, very complacent. They'd become uh, as a result of the life that they had, and, uh, and she had ceased to purify herself or, uh, uh, or remove the dregs from her uh, national life, and now these impurities, these sins, this idolatry, this pride is now all going to corrupt her and destroy her. One of the things when, when you talk about especially in the ancient world as it's des uh, described here, it talks about the wine being emptied from vessel to vessel. And it's talking about a nation, but it's also talking about an individual. So you, you pick the, this, uh, this uh, uh, wine vat made of clay or whatever it is, and, and they put the cloth over the top of the next one, and they're going to pour that wine uh, as a means of separation into the next container. That's a very, very violent action. Uh, not for the person doing it, but for the wine. That's a, that is a very violent uh, thing that is occurring uh, in the life of the wine in order to produce a purification, in order to separate what is, is ultimately going to destroy it. 
but if that isn't destroyed, if it isn't separated from the nation or from the human life, those things are allowed to continue in a nation or in a life, ultimately it will ruin everything. It will make everything uh, good for nothing. Yeah, and, and the same thing, and the point here is, is the same thing is true related to our lives. Uh, have you ever been a, uh, in this place in your life as a Christian? And you're a nicer person than you've ever been in your life. You're more obedient to God than you've ever been in your life. You're serving God like you've never served God in your whole life. And then one trial after another after another comes into your life, and you look at it, and you say, and the first, what's the first thing we do? God, show me the sin in my life that you're you know, judging me for. And if you don't think it, ten people will think it for you and come up and, and tell you like Job's comforters did. But there's that, so often we think that these things, uh, God allows these things to be introduced into our life solely because there's something wrong with us. And we can be completely right with God, and God will allow these things to come, one, two, three, in a series within our life, in order that we do not get too settled, too comfortable in our Christian life. We cease to grow as a Christian. We cease to serve uh, uh, the Lord and move into His purpose and His plan for our lives. And so a lot of the times the Lord shakes things up within our lives through trials for that purpose of purification. Again, because when it happens, excuse me, if you're anything like me, the first thing I'm saying is, God, is there something wrong? Am I missing something? Is there some area that displeases you in my life that I need uh, to repent of? But always this kind of movement, this kind of action, trial, uh, even violence it feels like, uh, when, uh, when, it, when it occurs, I've lost my thought here on that in just a moment. It'll be back at the end of the study, and then we'll start all the way back. It'll be like Monopoly. Uh, we'll go back. But, but when this kind of thing hits us like this, and, 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 we, and we hit that place, all it is is God not allowing us to fall into the place of Moab. And every one of us has a, a, a tremendous tendency to, uh, I'm, I'm a born coward. And the older I get, the more addicted to comfort I am and the more cowardly that I am. And, uh, and I want to look for that path of least resistance and, and carve out as, as uh, you know, uneventful a life as I possibly can. And God says, nice try. And, and this is the same thing related to any of our lives. But, you, but then when we look back at our lives and we see these things that God allowed in that we thought this is going to be the end of us, we will never survive this thing, and we look at it and we realize we learn things there that we would have never learned anywhere else. And so maybe you're in just that kind of a place here tonight, and it looks like God hates me, God is against me, how could he, how come he's not slamming them the way that he's slamming me? I know 10 Christians that got it way easier than I do, and so forth, and all it is is God just purifying us and uh, doing a good thing uh, within our lives. And they had ceased to have that process in their lives, ceased to do it uh, themselves, and so God now brings the judgment to, if, I, if I'm not going to allow for that refining process to occur in my life, and I re re resist it and I reject it, then, then chastening is, is the, the next step. And so sometimes it's, it's just like that. It keeps us from falling asleep as Christians. 
I was driving in my car uh, yesterday, and I had uh, some of Dylan's gospel stuff going on, and uh, that one song, When You're Gonna Wake Up, I forget what the title of it is, but that's the main, and just that whole tendency to fall asleep as Christians, and his movement, this kind of thing in our life, keeps us awake and engaged. And therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send him wine workers who will tip him over and break his vessels and break the bottles. They'd gone so far and, uh, and, and uh, so marred by their sin and idolatry that now only judgment could await them. Moab shall be ashamed of her god Chemosh as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. How can you say uh, we are uh, mighty and strong men for war? Moab was very confident in uh, the strength and, and uh, uh, her, uh, of her fighting men. Uh, Moab is plundered and gone up from her cities. Her chosen young men the best of the soldiers have gone down to the slaughter, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. The calamity of Moab is near at hand, and his affliction comes quickly. Bemoan him, all you who are around him, and all who know his name say, how strong the staff, how the strong staff is broken, uh, the beautiful rod. And the staff was a symbol of authority in the ancient world. The rod was a symbol uh, of strength, and uh, her strength and her uh, authority would be broken in this judgment. O daughter inhabiting uh, Dibon, uh, come down from your glory and sit in thirst. And Dibon was the royal city. It was where all the princes and the princes, uh, princesses and, and royalty lived. Come down from your glory <clears throat> of their uh, their position in life, and now get a sense for what it feels like to sit in thirst. For the plunder of Moab has come against you, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, and has destroyed your strongholds. O inhabitant of Aroer, uh, stand by the way and watch. Ask him who flees and her who escapes. Say, what has happened? And the news will be that Moab is shamed, for he is broken down. Wail and cry. Tell it in Arnon that Moab is plundered. And the idea is, is that as this uh, destruction and judgment comes to Moab, people will be fleeing as refugees, and the message of her destruction uh, will go out into the surrounding cities and the surrounding uh, nations. Verse 21, the judgment has come on the plain country, on Holon and uh, uh, Jaza. Uh, does he, is he a center for the warriors? No, that's Jaja. Okay. And uh, let me make sure I'm even getting it right. Jaza. Too bad. He could be making like 10 million a year today if he could. And so, and on uh, Mephaath, uh, on Dibon, and Nebo, and Beth uh, Diblath Aim, on Kirjath Aim, and Beth uh, Gamul, and Beth Meon, on Kerioth and Bozra on all the cities of the land of Moab, far or near, the horn of Moab, horn speaking of strength in the ancient world, is cut off, and his arm, another uh, symbol of strength, is broken, says uh, the Lord. And so, uh, the cities on her plain, they're going to be broken in 
and ruined, and, and so they were. Not much you can do with a broken arm, is it? I mean, it can be the strongest one in the world, but you break it. I was uh, fast-forwarding through the 49er game today and uh, uh, this afternoon, and I saw that the quarterback, got, uh, uh, Palmer, got uh, injured for the Cardinals. And uh, I don't know if they had a comedian running uh, the, the TV show at that time, but it, it, the, the banner was breaking news. Carson Palmer breaks right arm in the football game. Clearly someone who's never broken a, bro a right arm in a football game put that together. But a, an arm, no matter how strong it is, of no use at all when it's broken. Make him drunk because he exalted himself against the Lord. Moab shall wallow in his vomit, and he shall also be uh, in derision. And so Moab was uh, here speaking about the fact that she's drunk on her pride. And one of the things that Moab did is that when earlier in Israel's history, when uh, God judged the northern kingdom of Israel, Moab celebrated that. And uh, they rejoiced in the fact that the northern kingdom of Israel had been uh, defeated by uh, the Assyrians, exalted himself against the Lord, and God says, I took note of that. Moab is going to wallow in his vomit. He shall be in derision. He made fun of the Jews when they were down, the nation of Israel. God says, the nations will in turn make fun of you in the same way that a drunk that is on the ground and he is thrown up and he is wallowing in, in that vomit. The, uh, the crowd around him would take note of that and, and it would become a derision. And so, was not Israel a derision to you? And always derision is a mark of pride. Uh, when we look at another person, even if they deserve it, uh, and we see them being judged as Israel is being judged by uh, God, but if we look at it with derision, we celebrate the judgment, uh, we're happy for it. God takes note of that. It's always a mark of pride, and if it's unrepented of, uh, then ultimately uh, it, it ends up in us being judged one day as, as well. Was he found among thieves? For whenever you speak of him, you shake your head in scorn. You who dwell in Moab, leave the cities and dwell in the rock, and be like the dove which makes her nest in the sides of the cave's mouth. And so Jeremiah encourages them to flee to the high mountains that were a part of their land uh, where the birds found nest and safety. They said, that's the only place you're going to find safety as well. We have heard the pride of Moab, and here, here's the core problem. He is exceedingly uh, proud. Uh, the pride in the Bible is it's used at least in the New Testament. I don't know about the Hebrew as it's used exactly here. Uh, but it has the idea of to see myself above. That's what pride is, is I see myself above other people, better than other people. That's pride uh, in a relationship between uh, one human being and another human being. The ultimate expression of pride, though, is never toward our fellow man, but it is always toward God. And it is all, and the, the highest form of pride, the most dangerous form of pride, is idolatry and willful disobedience to God's Word. Because now I'm saying, I am above God's Word, I am even more important than God and than His Word, and that is, that's pride that's off of the graph. And, and so this is where they've gone in their idolatry and their disobedience. And, uh, and so Jeremiah says, we have heard the pride of 
of Moab. He is exceedingly proud. Uh, We've heard of his loftiness and his arrogance and pride and of the haughtiness uh, of his heart. I know his wrath, says the Lord, but it is not right. His lies have made nothing right. And so we see the cause of God's judgment against them here is uh, their idolatry, their disobedience to his law, whether they honored it or not or believed that it was important or not, and also for their pride expressed against God. And therefore, I will wail uh, for Moab, and I will cry out for all of Moab. I will mourn for the men of Kir Haris, O vine of Sibma. I will weep for you with the weeping of Jazer. Your plants have gone over the sea. They reach to the end of uh, Jazer. The uh, plunder has fallen on your summer fruit and your vintage. Joy and gladness are taken away from the plentiful field and from the land of Moab. I have caused wine to fail from the wine presses. No one will tread Uh, No one will tread with joyous shouting. There'll be no harvest. There'll be no next, uh, you know, uh, uh, vintage uh, of, of grapes and wine, and no joyous shouting. From the cry of Heshbon to, uh, uh, I was doing so good too, Uh, Eliana, and to uh, Jahaz, and they have uttered their voice from Zoar to Horon Aim, and like a three-year-old heifer, for the waters of Nimrim also shall be desolate. And moreover, says the Lord, I will, ca- I will cause to cease in Moab the one who offers sacrifices in the high places and burns incense to his gods. Therefore, my heart will, uh, shall wail like flutes for Moab, and like flutes my heart shall wail for the men of Kir Haris. Uh, Therefore, the riches have, they have acquired have perished. And so God, in this long section that I've just read here, God is saying that he himself mourns for the judgment that he's having to bring upon them. Uh, unlike their lack of compassion on Israel, when God judged Israel, they, they mocked, they scorned, they held them in derision. God says, I'm going to judge you, Moab, but it's going to break my heart to do that. And it's very similar to what we talked about uh, this morning in terms of the salvation of every human being in the world. First Peter, uh, Second Peter, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. As God pleaded with the nation of Israel through Ezekiel, turn ye, turn ye, for why will you die, O house of Israel? He, he, he longed for them to be saved and to turn, and, and when he does judge, and he's uh, forced to judge here because of their idolatry and the sacrifices and so forth, uh, it, it, uh, he didn't get any perverse joy in it. It was something that he had to do in his righteousness. I remember many, many years ago, a man in our fellowship, he was talking about a dream that he had. And uh, he said, I had a dream of the white throne judgment. And uh, in the white throne judgment, uh, you, you might be aware of the fact that that's the final judgment at the end of the age where those that have rejected Jesus for uh, all of their life and entered into eternity now Christless stand before him. No Christians stand before him in this judgment. And there's only one sentence that Jesus meets out at that white throne judgment, and it is to be cast into an eternal lake of fire, into eternal judgment and separation from God. And he said, in my dream, Jesus was standing there in the judgment, 
And while in the midst of that judgment, he was crying. And uh, I thought to myself as I talked it over with him a little bit, I, I'm certainly not going to elevate that to the place of, of Scripture. I don't know that he will cry or that he, he does cry. Uh, but the heart of God will be definitely broken at that judgment, as it is in any place of judgment in anybody's uh, life. He, he longs to bless us. He longs to bless mankind, his creation, and that's in his heart. And he's only forced into uh, the rest of this uh, as a result of decisions that we make. But it's, I mentioned that dream. It just comes to mind, but I mention it because it does something good in my heart as a Christian to realize in the middle of the most serious judgment that will ever occur in human history, didn't happen in Moab, didn't happen in the northern kingdom of Israel or in the southern kingdom of Judah. It will happen in the future at the white throne judgment of Christ and to realize that it is entirely likely uh, that God will weep in some respect as he is uh, forced to confirm the rebellion and, and the, the decision that people themselves have made for their own eternity. He goes on in verse 37 and says, for every head shall be bald and every beard clipped, on all the hands shall be cuts, and on the loins uh, sackcloth. So all of these were expressions of mourning uh, under the Moabites and the ancient world. These are the things that they would do to their, shave their heads, shave their beards, uh, cut themselves, and so forth as an expression of the mourning of the judgment. A general lamentation on all of the housetops uh, of uh, Moab and in its streets. For I have broken Moab like a vessel in which is no pleasure, says the Lord. And they shall wail how she is broken down, how Moab is turned her back with shame. So Moab will be a derision and a display uh, to all those about her. And so she ends up being discarded like uh, a broken uh, clay pot. In the ancient world, they didn't have super glue, so when you broke a pot, that was it. It was broken. And then they would take these bits of, of pot, and they would have a, a field uh, in a city like Jerusalem. And all the clay shards would be brought to that place, and they'd be piled there. It'd be just kind of like a dump for that kind of stuff. And when you ended up putting that much kind of broken pottery into the place, it would go down to the soil and down and so forth and become compressed and, and all. Uh, that piece of land would become uh, worth very, very uh, little. And we remember, of course, as Judas, uh, as he tries to return the money, the 30 pieces of silver in betraying Jesus, the money was used to buy uh, a potter's field, the most inexpensive uh, piece of land to then uh, use for the bearing uh, of, of the poor. Verse 40, for thus says the Lord, behold, one shall fly like an eagle. And this is speaking now uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I don't know if you've ever had an eagle come after you. I rarely see an eagle. I'm a city guy, so I don't get out there too much on where you see these things, but they are majestic when I have seen them, and I wouldn't want to be another bird uh, or another creature and have, uh, be in the sights of, of an eagle. So, especially to be a, a dove or something like that, like Moab here is here in terms of of helplessness. And so, he's going to come in. He's going to fly uh, like an eagle. I would put the fear in any kind of animal. I, it, it, sometimes you see it be like what would be the equivalent today of a drone. Uh, if you saw like a military drone coming your way, it'd be like, don't even bother running. 
Don't even bother running. Just take out your Hershey bar, eat it, and then get ready to be uh, wiped out. And, uh, and so, you know, this irresistible force, it, impossible to resist it here, is Nebuchadnezzar is coming. And uh, behold, one shall fly like an eagle and spread his wings over uh, Moab. He's going to conquer it. Carryoff is taken, and the strongholds are surprised. The mighty men's hearts in Moab on that day shall uh, be like the heart of a woman in birth pangs. I've never had a baby, but many of you have. And can you imagine the ideas? I, I've, I've watched it, watched both of our daughters be born. And uh, there's something, there's an intensity, isn't there, right in those contractions right there? And I don't think any woman's ever born a child in the middle of the contraction felt like, boy, this is nothing to this. I could get up and fight a battle with Nebuchadnezzar at the same time. No, when you're, when you're in the middle of a contraction, you're just thinking about surviving the contraction. You don't have any reserves to do anything beyond that. And that's, that's what he's talking about, uh, about here. Even the bravest of men will be uh, incapacitated before the Babylonian military in the same way that a woman is capacitated uh, in the contractions of childbirth. And Moab shall be destroyed as a people because he exalted himself against the Lord. Now there we get to it. Yeah, we get to it. Anywhere we live in this world, any nation that we live in, doesn't matter what nation it is, we live in God's living room. And, uh, and it doesn't matter whether we believe in Him or not, uh, to sin a a a against Him is, is something that He notices and He must deal with because he exalted himself against the Lord. That's the cause of the judgment. And fear in the pit and the snare shall be upon you, O inhabitant of Moab, says the Lord. Now, you stop and look at the world all around us and thinking about a world that is rapidly priming itself for God's judgment because uh, in the rebellion against the God of the Bible, against His commandments, the new morality, the new sexual revolution, uh, and, and then the, the, the jettisoning of the Ten Commandments or any commandments of God and so forth. And we see the world is moving very rapidly, at least if you're 62 years old like I am, you see how far things are moving and, not, and how quickly they are moving as a result of that. And to stop and to think for a moment about how much of the United States of America and the citizens of the United States States of America are exactly in the place of Moab, and how much of the world that we live in is exactly in the, the, uh, the position that Moab is in. No concern for God. We worship uh, the material world. We worship the idols that we make up. We worship ourselves. We worship our wealth. We go on about our business. We don't care about God, not one bit. It doesn't matter whether you do or you don't, because I haven't seen him judge any nation, you know, in uh, 2,000 years or 3,000 years, and so we're just going to call his bluff because this is a new age. And we see the same thing uh, building up. When you look at the things that marked Moab, the sins that they were doing again in God's living room, and to realize these things mark much of the world that we live in, and ultimately it must be judged. And there's no joy in it, but it's an observation uh, of, of where we are and how even this chapter applies uh, to our life and our situation today. He who flees in an attempt now to flee God's judgment when ultimately uh, he, he pours it out. He who flees uh, from uh, the fear uh, of this invasion shall then fall into a pit. So you're running down the road and you, uh, out of fear, then you fall into a pit, and then you get yourself out of the pit, 
and as you get yourself out of the pit and you start running again, you're caught in a snare or in a trap. In other words, God's judgment is inescapable once it, it unfolds. For upon, Moab, upon, uh, for upon Moab, upon it I will bring uh, the year of their punishment, says the Lord, those who fled under the shadow of Heshbon because of the exhaustion, but a fire shall come out of Heshbon. Uh, so they move from the pit, they move to the snare, and then now they get out of the snare Somehow they flee to Heshbon for protection, and a fire then comes out of Heshbon, a flame from the midst of Sihon, and, every, and shall devour the brow of Moab, the crown of the head of the sons of Tumult. Woe to you, O Moab, the people of Chemosh uh, perish, for your sons have been taken captive and your daughters uh, captive." It re reminds me of Revelation chapter 6, where the beginning of those seals are starting to be broken of God's judgment during the Great Tribulation period. And here are these people running and trying to find a place of escape. Where can we hide? They're hiding in the mountains. They're hiding under rocks to, to flee the judgment uh, of God. Where can we go to hide from the judgment? And there is no hiding place. But the interesting thing about Revelation chapter 6 is the people, they want to find a place to hide, to be protected from God's judgment. But even in the midst of the, the breaking of those seals, uh, by and large on planet earth, they are not interested in turning from their sin and making things right. They just want to be spared the judgment. And yet God hears the heart of God. It's just the way that He is. Uh, he's, he's a softy in, uh, in a lot of respects. He wants a happy ending in any situation that he's involved in. And he says as he closes this uh, chapter on, uh, of the judgment of Moab, yet I will bring back the captives of Moab in the latter days, says the Lord, and thus far is the judgment uh, of Moab. And so Moab uh, ceased to be a nation following its destruction by Babylon, but in the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ, Moab, this biblical nation of Moab, will once again be in its place in terms of, uh, of the world and the world atlas and, and all. And you say, well, who are they? Where do you, where do you find a, a Moabite? I don't know any Moabites. How are you going to identify them? That's not your problem. That's not my problem. God knows who they are, and He's going to bring them back in, uh, into the land is just an expression of His goodness and His grace. And uh, He does love a happy ending if He is allowed uh, to write one. Let's press a little bit further in, uh, into chapter 49. We certainly won't uh, finish it tonight, but a, a little bit further into it. Uh, before, we, uh, before we stop this evening. Next, he begins to speak about his judgment against the Ammonites. And uh, the Ammonites, uh, they were in the ancient world, they were located uh, to the north of uh, Moab on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Again, what we know as modern-day uh, Jordan and, uh, and, and, uh, and the possessors of what is even today the very, very rich Jordan Valley. On any trip to Israel, it's interesting that on uh, day four, typically, of a trip that we take, we go from the north up in the Galilee region, and then we take a drive all the way down into the area of the Dead Sea, and we run right along uh, the entire Central Valley, essentially, of Israel, and there is a river that cuts down that, the Jordan River uh, uh, Valley. And on the, on the 
Israel side of the Jordan River, it's tremendous, the production, the crops, and, and everything, how uh, productive they have made that. But they've also worked in the last um, 50, 60 years very, very cooperatively with the Jordanian government. There's uh, not a lot of squabble between Israel and, and Jordan in the Middle East, and hasn't been for quite a while. And, uh, and to go down on that, that drive down that highway and then to look at these kind of tiered uh, plateau of what you know, used to be Ammon is now Jordan, and to see how productive it is. I mean, uh, f uh, crops of every kind in every direction. Uh, it was a very, very uh, beautiful place to be situated uh, agriculturally for prosperity and so forth was, was where Ammon was. Uh, the Ammonites were centered around the city of uh, Rabbath Ammon, uh, which today we know in modern times as uh, modern Ammon. It's the capital of Jordan. So this is where it, it's located. The Ammonites were also the descendants of Lot, uh, like the Moabites, and um, they were the product, of, you might remember, a very dark kind of uh, chapter in the Old Testament where uh, Lot was involved in a, a drunken and incestuous relationship with his daughters and uh, following the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it produced uh, these nations, these peoples. And uh, because of Lot's relationship with his uncle uh, Abraham, and as a result, being kind of cousins of the Jews, as a result, the Ammonites, uh, the, uh, the, both the Ammonites and the Moabites probably began as God-fearers. They began as worshipers of the God of Israel. And so the fact that they moved in historically into idolatry and idol worship is, is something that they had uh, chosen uh, to do. But by the time we come to Ammon at this point uh, in the history of that tribe and that nation, uh, they've given themselves completely over to uh, the God uh, of Molech. Against the Ammonites, verse 1, thus says the Lord, has Israel no sons, has he no heirs? Why then does Milcom uh, inherit Gab and his people dwell in its cities? And so here uh, the Ammon is rebuked for taking land that had been given to the tribe of Gad at the time of the conquest of uh, the promised land under Joshua. Uh, and, and so you had Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh decided they wanted land because it was very fertile land, good for cattle, you might remember, um, on the uh, eastern side of the Jordan River, and they didn't want to go into the promised land. They didn't want to portion the promised land, but they would fight so the rest of the nine and a half tribes would get their, their portion of the land. And then what he's talking about here historically is that when the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and displaced the Jews, the Ammonites were very, very happy over that development. And they simply just came right down into the properties that be, be, belonged to these Jewish people from the tribe of Gad, and they took it for themselves with no intention of ever returning it uh, to them if they ever got out of Assyria. And God took no notice of it and said, listen, you're just doing whatever you want. Like uh, Israel has no sons, he has no heir, he has no one that's looking out for him who's going to protect him. And, uh, and so why have you taken your God Milcom and uh, centered him now into what belongs uh, to my people? And it's the charge that uh, God made against him. Now when you see Milcom here, 
as he's listed. That is, uh, uh, that god Milcom was, it, it biblically is known uh, by a, a more familiar name, the god of Molech. And the god of Molech was the god that involved um, child sacrifice. It involved the offering of, of children into the uh, heated, uh, fiery arms of, of the God as the child would tumble into the flames in order to appease this God. This gives you an idea of the degradation uh, of, of the culture and people, people's thinking. I mean, it's a, the thinking becomes depraved long before the actions uh, do. And therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will cause to be heard an alarm of war. And Rabbah of the Ammonites, it shall be a desolate mound, and her villages shall be burned with fire, and then Israel shall take possession of his inheritance, says the Lord. You've taken it, but I'm going to judge you in a way that releases that for my people when they come out of captivity. Wail, O Heshbon, for Ai is plundered. Cry, you daughters of Rabbah, gird yourself with sackcloth, lament and run to and fro by the walls, for Milcom shall go into captivity. Good riddance. Uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, Milcom and Molech are uh, very uh, strongly represented in the world, and very much so in the United States of America uh, to, this, uh, to this day. In the worship of uh, of, of uh, premarital sex and the sexual revolution, the unwanted children, and then what do you do with them? Their convenient thing was to just simply offer these children uh, that they didn't want that came out of sexual immorality uh, into the fires of Molech. We found ways to do it a little more discreetly, a little more quietly. We do it in a mother's womb, but it's the worship of the same thing, the worship of sexual immorality and then a willingness to do anything and become any anything as human beings in order to protect uh, that uh, sexual freedom. And so all of this, this is, again, nothing new under the sun, uh, just the names have changed, and uh, we, uh, we say we don't worship an image associated with this, but we worship the concept behind the image every bit as much as, as they did uh, historically and in vastly greater numbers. Uh, if you don't, on the basis of abortion alone, and I, I don't bring a, abortion up uh, uh, loosely, but it must be brought up because it is the holocaust of our age. It is the plague of our age. And I don't want anyone to feel bad about uh, something in your past that is under the blood of Christ and completely under the blood of Christ and forgotten. Uh, but if we were, as a nation, if we were pristine, in every other way, and yet continue to support legalized abortion the way that we do. The killing of innocents within a mother's womb, which a place which ought to be and has historically been the safest place for a child in all of human history, then on the basis of that alone, God's judgment hangs over this nation. And there is no getting around it. And again, these sins that we are, we are involved in, we just don't use the terminology. And one day we may find ourselves in a place where we're like Moab or we're like Ammon. I hope it isn't. I hope it doesn't come to pass. I hope revival comes to our nation. But here we are. We're the great military. We've got all of the money. Everybody fears us and so forth. And we're going to send our great legions out into battle, and God can wipe them out in an instant. And he can humble this nation in an instant. 
all of this speaks to us today, where the world is in a very dangerous place, including the United States of America, in the eyes of God on the basis of of what is, not in, in terms of what we do or don't practice individually. There are righteous people within the nation, but the government has now become uh, the, the protector. It has become the endorser of activities that are uh, clearly against uh, the Word of God. And you take abortion, and any, anything you want to go beyond that becomes something uh, far less in comparison. But uh, you... Uh, so I won't do it. Uh, things come to mind right now, but I see I've got two minutes left here, and, and we'll uh, wrap that up. But I don't, I'm not going to talk about legalizing marijuana and the, the nuttiness uh, of, of that whole thing and, and uh, other things that we're doing that are legalizing that are, are, are wrong in the eyes of God and going to be very destructive for people. They already are. And, and so he talks about Milcom, verse 3, going into captivity with his priests and his princes uh, together. Again, he couldn't protect his uh, closest uh, 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 worshipers. Why do you boast in the valleys, uh, your flowing uh, valley, O oh, backsliding daughter? Again, the prosperity of their, uh, their agricultural heritage, which was wealth, uh, untold wealth in those days, and uh, trusting in, in that wealth, who trusted in her treasures, saying, Who will come against me? Behold, I will bring fear upon you, says the Lord of hosts. All those who are around you shall be driven out, everyone headlong, and no one will uh, gather those who wander off. And then again, God wanting to, uh, to finish. He's just looking for a chance to show grace. But afterward, I will bring back the captives of the people of Ammon, says the Lord. And so, uh, it, it God said that He would do that following the Babylonian captivity. This probably, again, has an end-of-the-age kind of a um, uh, speaking to that, the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, that the Ammonites will once again be in their land. We'll stop there at verse 6, and he continues by talking about Edom and, and uh, moving so forth in, in various uh, nations as we uh, continue through toward the end of the book and ultimately uh, with Babylon. One of the things I want to leave us with in verse 49, and, and one of the great sins uh, of Ammon, in addition to their wickedness, was the fact that when Israel was down and being judged by God and in a place of vulnerability, they took that moment of vulnerability to step in and take advantage of God's people. And it's a very good thing for us to be reminded of, not just concerning God's people, but any people, that when God is working or some situation is happening in a person's life where they become extraordinarily vulnerable to being taken advantage of in this season of their life, to always resist doing that and stepping in and thinking, wow, they're in a powerless place. I can strip them of everything they own and sell them a this or a that or uh, rip them off in some kind of a way or just openly steal from them. And God notices it, and we are never, ever to take advantage of that kind of season in anyone's life. Let's stand together, and we'll pray, and we'll close uh, this evening. There's a lot of judgment, isn't there, in, in all of this? 
And I want to say, and I don't know who wanders in so often on a Sunday night, and I recognize most of you, but uh, if you're here this evening and you're not yet a Christian, uh, God loves you, He loves your soul, but He can't ignore your sin, and, and so He's provided a way of salvation and forgiveness in His Son. And if you are not yet a Christian tonight, we would love to pray with you to begin that relationship uh, this evening, and it's all a prayer away. One of the great things, too, as we, as we look at uh, the judgment that's meted out and so forth, we see the heart of God, how He longs for a happy ending. He wants His grace to have the final say in any of our lives. And if you find yourself, even as a Christian here tonight, and very, very far away from God, and maybe even beginning to feel the judgment of God or the chastening of God, uh, upon your life as a result of that, that to realize with just a turning away and committing your life fully to Him, that it unleashes Him, it, it, it frees Him now uh, to bless you in the way that He wants to. And that's all for the asking and all for the receiving as well. Whatever you might need prayer for,